Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I'm really pleased to say that here in New York, we're joined now by Brian Levitt, Oppenheimer Fund's senior investment strategist. Brian, good morning to you, sir. And I guess we've got to get used to this permanent layer of uncertainty. (laughs) Uh, Are we just going to do this every single month for the next few months and maybe the foreseeable future as well? Well, I guess time will tell. I suspect we might. I mean, I still view this, Jonathan, as a a very... political move from the from the president he ran on a protectionist sentiment nationalism and so he brings these things out and then we slowly walk them back i the reason why i view it as still largely political rather than a more of a of a of a bigger move is because you know this is done to appease the base in the midterm elections and and set up 2020 yeah. but if you go forward in an integrated global marketplace with uh uncertainty around trade or or greater protectionist measures you're going to see an economy and a market that perhaps doesn't look so good by the midterms or into the 2020 election. So the president and the administration need to navigate that. So it's a stick to negotiate better deals. Um, In the meantime, and you kind of touched on it, and I want you to elaborate, do you see any damage being done to the economy as this administration chooses to use this negotiating tactic? Well, for the time being, business sentiment looks quite good. So we're we're coming at this at a place where businesses are keeping more of what they earn. Um, confidence is high. But yeah, you could see some erosion in sentiment if uncertainty continues over where we're going with regards to trade. I mean, businesses, you know, it's the old saying, the old adage that the toothpaste is out of the tube on globalization. And yeah. for a lot of big companies, um, you could see stranded capital if um, yeah. we go down a more protectionist path. You guys are in the theme and definitely the theme of the president of the United States delegation heading to China to begin talks on the massive trade deficit that has been created with our country. Very much like North Korea, this should have been fixed years ago, not now. Same with other countries and NAFTA, dot, dot, dot. But it will all get done. Great potential for the USA, exclamation point. The president uh, John Farrow, three minutes ago. Yeah, and the truth is this should have been dealt with years ago. Previous administrations should have tackled the issue that is China head on, and they haven't. And you just wonder whether we can actually get some results. Are you hopeful, Brian, that we could get some positive results here when this delegation does head over to China? Well, what I would like to see is you know greater protection for U.S. technological companies, greater protection for intellectual property, but to do so in a manner that is not disruptive of the goods market. If anything, um, you could see some... Uh, you know, some impetus for greater reform in China. If there, if there, if we do go down a path of greater disruption in the goods market, there could be opportunity for China to transition more quickly um, to a yeah. more consumer-based economy and a more service-based economy. But again, we have to remember that the numbers that we're talking about with regards to trade and the tariffs that we're concerned about is still small from a from a, a U.S.-China trade perspective. I think it's still about sentiment and confidence at this point. Brian Levitt with us with Oppenheimer Funds, and we must say, John, Pim, and I, that we thank you for your support of Bloomberg Surveillance. Absolutely. Oppenheimer Funds is, uh, uh, we appreciate your global and coast-to-coast support for all that we do. Christian Mamani was in the other day. Let me ask you the same question. Do I buy U.S. multinationals to express an international view, or do I still have to go out there and get international companies? 
Well, we believe you still have to go out there and get international companies. I mean, there's a lot of great companies around the world that are taking advantage of significant growth trends all around the world. Most American investors are not significantly exposed to we those don't have the research the capability right i mean but you know tom we uh, we deal with these products on a daily basis i mean that for most of us we get up in the morning okay, well, and turn off the japanese I, alarm clock and put on the korean television right, but, right? But, but this is important in the old days it was simple you bought telephonus mexico you bought t-max <laughs> and you bought a concrete company in southeast asia and you called yourself an right, international right. investor <laughs> right give us a john i'm serious you think i'm, I'm kidding i know john. i don't think you are i just think it's and funny. Then, you know, there's like six textbooks for the CFA you read on this. Great. What do you guys actually do in Malaysia? Well, um, you know, I would just say, you know, turning it to the global economy, to the global markets as a whole. I mean, if I were to go home on Mother's Day with, uh, you know, a U.S. made luxury product, my wife might look at me and say, where's the Louis Vuitton product? Where's the Burberry product? Where's Excuse the me, Hermes product? Louis Vuitton. exactly. Um, you know, you look at what's going on in China with what's going on in e-commerce or gaming or yeah. social media i mean these we're not buying concrete companies we're buying companies that are that are a part of this big growth trend over there can you buy mid-cap internationally is is there like is it all blue chip or can you like is there a lot of mid-cap companies no, to research? There's, there's a lot of mid-cap companies to research. In fact, um, if you look at our performance of our international small mid, our emerging market small mid, we've we've um, generated very strong performance in those parts of the market. And they, you know, they tend to be less covered. Great, great opportunity for active yeah. managers to take advantage. Can we get to the elephant in the room just quickly? Yeah. And I think for financial markets, the elephant in the room cross-asset over the last couple of weeks has been this resurgent U.S. dollar. And it certainly matters yeah. to the trade discussion too. And we see it on the screen again, the dollar bid coming back into the market. Brian, what do you make of that? Because so many people eager to fade this. They just don't believe right. that this is going to continue. It's just a relief rally, bit of covering. Yeah. We'll be back on trend shortly. What are your thoughts right now? Well, the first thing is if you pull it up on the Bloomberg terminal and you zoom in, it does look like a pretty good move. If you zoom out just a few months or, yeah. or a year, it doesn't look like much of a move at all. So the the trend, the weaker trend still remains intact. What's happening is the money or capital is going to flow to where there's growth. And the United States, um, although, uh, uh, you know, the first quarter wasn't as it was big as people some may have expected, it's still above trend. And the second half of the year is likely to look pretty good, given the amount of stimulus coming to the U.S. economy. So some money comes in. Um, I think over time, we are likely to be in a stable or weaker right. dollar environment. I'm going to put two charts out. Can we do this for Bloomberg Radio? You can, Jen? yeah. It works on radio. You We're going to do two standard deviation trading envelope, zooming in, as Mr. Levitt says. And then I'm going to take the weekly chart, John, which yeah. borders on teacher college course excellence of where we're just mid-range, as Mr. Levitt suggests. A weekly chart gives you a dollar that's migrated stronger yep. back to the mid-range. And I think where there are worries is if this continues, there's several trades that sit on top of this weaker dollar theme. And the big one, for me at least, that I observe is this consensus overweight into WeAmp, both on the equity and the debt side that's been built up over the last year. I build up on the back of a weaker dollar, Brian. That's right. And at, look, at this point in the cycle, I would be far more concerned with a significantly weaker dollar that was inflationary in the U.S., would bring forward Fed tightening and, you know, would see something along the lines of the taper tantrum that we saw 
um, the last time that, you know, in 2013, 2014. But if you look at the emerging markets right now, inflation is down, real yields are, are attractive, growth looks strong. Um, so the currencies have sold off some as, you know, U.S. growth uh, looks like it's going to pick up in the second half of the year. But to me, this is not the disruptive environment that we saw in the past. I would be much more concerned with a significantly weaker dollar and more aggressive Fed tightening. Um, some some modest improvements on in the U.S. dollar, some modest yeah. strength in the U.S. dollar on the back of good growth should be good for the global economy and emerging markets. Brian Levitt, great to catch up with you this morning. Oppenheimer Fund Senior Investment Strategist. If you're in the bond market, this is the interview of the day. Priya Misra with TD Securities. She's brilliant, not only on full faith and credit, but taking it out to lesser credits <coughs> as well. Priya, what's the tip point looking at full faith and credit 10-year yield? Do you have in your head a point with a two-year yield? It's not a linear function. It's quadratic. It's dynamic. At what point do we really sit up and watch the nominal 10-year yield? That's a great question. I think for a lot of people in the market, it's 3%. So that was at the oh, psychological on. level. Dow 10,000. I don't Next. believe 3%, right? <clears throat> what is it? I would say for the two-year, to watch anything close to three, I would get a lot more nervous about because I think that is indicating that the Fed is going above neutral. I think neutral rate is somewhere in the 2.5 range, which is exactly where we are right now. So we got to go up half a percentage point in the two-year yield. Right. Is that a function of GDP growth or is that a function of Fed movement? It's a function of uh, real long-term GDP growth. I, th I think inflation, there are secular forces that keep inflation, you know, pretty well contained in, in the 2% range. It's really long-term real rate of, of uh, interest, you know. Is that moving higher? We're not really seeing any evidence that that's moving up. Productivity uh, stays pretty is, is, is staying pretty low. Labor force participation is only going to keep heading lower as we're an aging population. So if the Fed actually takes uh, real interest rates, uh, you know, close to that, at one or higher percent level, I do worry about then is the economy's ability to handle these high real rates. I'm not sure we're, we're there yet. Well, we don't really have any real rates um, from the Federal Reserve yet on a, on a real basis. Um, we're still fair. incredibly accommodative, Priya. I think something a lot of people are exploring right now, including Goldman Sachs and yourself, is whether the Fed interest rate peaks above where the market sees the interest rate peaking. Um, where are those two respective things right now as far as you're concerned? Yeah, I think the Fed's been suggesting now for a while uh, because the the uh, the, uh, the SCP or, or essentially the dot plot has been suggesting that the Fed in 2019 is going to go above neutral. I think the rates market's really going to struggle to price that in because, you know, a year from now, growth could be slowing down. Um, you know, we could have interest rates rising as the Treasury issues significant amount of supply. So I think the market struggles to price that in. I also worry about risk assets. If the Fed moves away from the narrative of normalization to, no, we're tightening and we're going significantly above what everyone believes is neutral rates, how do risk assets react in that environment? This because is exactly the conversation I had yesterday with um, JP Morgan and Bob Michael on the asset management side, that it's not the 10-year, he's looking at the two-year. Right. And at the moment, quite clearly, you're not really incentivized to take duration risk because the spread's like 50 basis points, 10s exactly. over twos, and even less if 30s over 10s. Um, credit risk and the incentive to take credit risk is really going to be hit if you get that two-year note up to 3%. 
Is that your base case, Priya, that we do get that two-year note up to 3%? So I guess it depends on if the economist in me thinks yes, the strategist in me, because, you, you know, historically the Fed does go uh, above neutral. The strategist in me worries about how financial conditions tighten and the fact that we have, for this time in the cycle, a significant amount of treasury supply than the market has to take down at the same time when global interest rates might be rising. So I do worry about the Fed's ability to get two more hikes this year, I think is doable. When we talk about next year, as we're talking about going above neutral in an environment where interest rates are rising, I think the tightening financial conditions will probably prevent the Fed to take interest rates that high. Do any of our listeners get a real wage increase? Priya Misra, rates up, inflation up. I don't buy for a moment that anybody's supposed to get a real wage increase. Yeah, well, what we're seeing in the labor market is a very bifurcated labor market. So you Mm. will see high wage increases if you're in the group of people where there is a significant Mm. skills mismatch. For a lot of us, I think technology, um, you know, I think all of that keeps wage, real wage growth very low at at pretty low levels. Priya Mizra, thank you so much for TD Securities. Walter Pysak, working with Rich Greenfield at BTIG, has just been absolutely brilliant on staying with the Apple story once again through thick and thin. Oh, right now, as you mentioned, Walter, the hand-wringing going on. Is the legitimate worry over iPhone legitimate, or is it just another bout of worry? Which worry we're talking about this quarter? Every quarter there seems to be a different worry, and, you know... (laughs) Antenna gate and well, all these different types of gates that are out there, right? So yeah. the, um, it, but you know, going the concern in, in guidance is is the new one. Last quarter, the, the going in the the guidance <clears throat> consensus was sixty eight billion. Um, that was obviously too high. People were too <laughs> excited about the ASP right. mix, and that number came all the way down to sixty billion, and the stock. Um, still perform well, outperforming the market. So here we are again, worried about what the guidance is going to be for the June quarter. Now, in terms of the iPhone um, 10, I think the concerns are, are just way too high. Like some of the data that we're getting from the operators is that, you know, people are buying this product. And actually, the market share may have increased from month to month. Certainly, the 8 is the thing that's selling more. But right. it's not like the 10 is this horrible phone that no one wants to buy. The bigger issue is you had analysts. At the end of last year, you know, talking about super cycle, this is the next super cycle from the iPhone 6, and like augmented reality is going to drive these massive phone sales, and that's just, that's not the case. Like, Apple is not that boom and bust cycle that it was before. It's, it's, it's all coming down to how old your phone, and are these replacement cycles going to stop elongating? Are the upgrade yeah. rates of the operators going to start going up? That's the issue. Walter, there's this great function on the Bloomberg, and I'm sure you've used it before. It's ERN, and you can get the earnings surprises for any given security on any given equity across most of the planet. The last time that Apple actually missed earnings estimates on any given quarter, you have got to go back, I think all the way back, to Q2-16. Q2-16 is all the way back to Q2-16, and before then, you've got to go all the way back to Q4-2012. It's just really rare for Apple to miss earnings estimates. Why do we do this every quarter, Walter? 
I mean, there, it's a huge company, right? Everyone, it's broadly owned, so there's obviously a tremendous amount of focus on it. But ironically, the work that's done to try and figure out where that guidance is going to be probably is, is a bit lacking in some cases. And there's a lot of data points that people react to. I mean, you get um, a number of different suppliers that may or may not be losing market share with Apple or, or coming out with, with estimates that have been revised on a weekly or a, or a monthly basis, and then you have analysts reacting to it. I mean, the approach that we, we try to take is looking more on the demand side. Where are the end users right now in terms of how old are the phones that, that they currently own? And what are the operators telling us in terms of, of those upgrade rates? And, and there's reason to be more optimistic now than we have in the past, meaning that it sounds like those upgrade rates are not going to continue to decline you know, as we progress through 2018. And there was already some evidence of that in, in the AT&T and the Verizon uh, numbers, that the companies that reported last week in terms of those upgrade rates. So, Walter, the sweetener could be um, the capital return program as well. What's your base case for what we get from Apple on, on buybacks and boost to dividends and the like after the tax cut? I mean, I've always looked at this in terms of they're, 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 they're generating a tremendous amount of free cash flow. So forget about the cash that's already on the balance yeah. sheet. And, mm. and they can spend $10 billion a quarter uh, on share repurchase. Now, if you said everyone's talking about this net cash zero, meaning that you take your $160 billion of net cash and you bought a bunch of stock back. If they bought at the stock price today, you'd, you'd eliminate 20% of the share count, right? So you'd add about $3 in, in earnings um, just from that, you know, that type of significant event in, ter- in terms of share repurchase. I, I don't mind if they do it on a regular basis or they increase the dividend. I mean, this is a way that, that you take what is more normal or, and recurring mm-hmm. lower revenue growth and leverage it into higher, uh, higher earnings growth. So our base is... A- no, go ahead. But our base, our base case, our base case is again is, is is ten billion a quarter. But if they want to do something extraordinary above and beyond that, right? Um, then obviously that's going to have a huge impact to earnings. So here's a question I've never asked because once again we're hand rigging. If you're just joining us, Walter Prysek with us with BTIG. The world's going to end as we know it, but we never talk. And this is CFA one two three about the malleability of a given company's income statement which is that the margins are there and there's dynamics, Walter, within those margins. It can be SG&A, it can be manufacturing processes and the rest of it. How malleable, flexible, adjustable is their income statement? My answer is it's got to be more malleable than anyone's out there. Well, the, well, there is some malleability, but I think on the R&D line as an example, um, as far as Please. you know, what they're in, investing in future, I mean, that's, that number has been outpacing revenue growth, right? They're spending more and more on R&D every year, and I think what investors yeah. are hoping for that, is that that will, at some point, you know, yield a new product that will help us on, Why on do, the revenue okay, side. Stop there. That's too important. Why do they need a new product? I mean, I think people look at the the iPhone business, and if you're bullish on the company, you say, "Look, it's 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 um, we might not have these forty percent growth years again, but you've got a base that's going to come back to you every couple of years and continue to buy the phone. So, if we'd rather not have three or four percent growth, and we'd rather have double digit growth, you know, we have services out there as as a business that a lot of people talk about. But new products are other ways that you can accelerate growth. But Tom, the other thing on margins that, that's interesting in terms of the malleability of an income statement. If you remember a decade ago, or, or maybe even longer, uh, you know when Motorola and Nokia were the top dogs in this space in terms of devices, they would struggle to maybe get to 10% operating margins. We are so far above what the perception of the appropriate margin is for phones 
relative to consumer electronic business or even other, you know, past leaders yeah. in this space that whether it's up or down 20 or 30 basis point is, is, is the, it, it's missing the bigger picture in terms of how high these margins are. And why is that? Because people come back to these products every, you know, every couple of years and they're very loyal to the brand. Walter, I want to finish up by talking about the multiple and talking about the services business that you just briefly mentioned. I, I don't think many people outside the analyst community that you lead um, are quite aware that it's now the second biggest source of revenue for Apple. It's coming from the services side of the business. What does that mean for how this company evolves over the coming years in your mind, Walter? And what does that ultimately mean for how we value this company? So, so what it really means is you have this. It goes back to this concept of a loyal customer base. I, I could pitch the fact that their their phone business is a recurring revenue business. That you're not going to go to Android when you're ready to replace your phone. So you say, okay, I've got this loyal base. Now, what else? What other types of revenue can I extract from them? And services becomes that. So it's going to ultimately turn into a more of a recurring revenue business. Like we look at wireless operators, where there's a, hey, I've got X, you know, number of users. Let's call it a billion users, and they're paying me X dollars a month on their different services that we're offering. And we're hoping that we can take that ARPU higher or lower and, and that we grow our overall base. And, and if you start looking at the company in terms of that, a recurring revenue stream, investors are typically willing to assign a much higher valuation on the company. And, and you know, up to this point, from a valuation standpoint, Apple is traditionally traded at a discount to the market. But recurring revenue mm-hmm. stream type companies should get a premium right. to, to the market valuation. And that would be the ultimate goal. 12 on target, please. We're at 198, I believe. And, and again, mm-hmm. that's, that's not even assuming that they can they can get a premium to yeah. the market. We're just talking at market type multiples. Yeah. Walter, thank you so much. Love to get you and Rich Greenfield on together again. We did that, I believe, a year ago. That, was that would be cool. Just lights out. It was great. do a tangent here and talk about a company that I'm sure many of you have looked at before. Some have owned it, some have not. Christian Malik with us with J.P. Morgan Casanova in London. And Christian, it is a company that defines for me the word enigma, and it is British Petroleum. For the last 10 years, the total return is under 5%. For the last 20 years, the total return is under 5%. How do they get away with this? That's a great question, Tom, and thanks for inviting me on the show. And, um, uh, you know, you, you use a very British term, enigma, to describe uh, BP. And I think, you know, when we sort of zoom out on BP and look at the history and look at what happened on Macondo, you could argue that BP has gone through several inflection points. And in fact, you probably don't want to use the word inflection too, too strongly, given they've had to go through several, both in the context of having to sort of get through Macondo, restructure the business in order to be able to source the funds for paying Macondo, but equally through a, through a down cycle and having to sort of restructure again in terms of recalibrating under lower oil. And I think what's interesting is you're seeing, you know, BP sort of come out of this in terms of these two tracks, the Macondo track and the the sort of the the industrial track around around the down cycle and, and, and the way it's coming out is I think this quarter in some ways symbolizes for them 
this inflection around the condo finally being behind them and also being able to deliver a significant cash uplift through not just restructuring under lower oil, but yeah. all the projects that they put through and what it means for free cash flow. It's finally coming together for them. Um, and this is where I'd come back to you and say 5% is probably the right way to think about it given the value destruction through both what happened in the condo and then the down cycle. But that, I feel, is their cross to therefore generate a lot more value going forward, having learned their lessons. I just want to know, are they going to maintain the dividend? Yeah, that's a very fair question. In some ways, that's the way we pivot our, our buy case on BP. It's all about cash break-evens. What price can you, do you – what price can – all price – um, can you pay your full cash dividend? This is the first quarter where we've seen a total shooting of the lights for BP. They've, they've basically come out with a cash break even in the mid-30s, i.e. $35 to pay their full cash dividend. Um, the trending on cash break users for BP is best in class, from $60 uh, last year to $50 this year to 40 next year and then below 40 by 2020. The average break even for the sector sits around um, $50 over the next few years. So you're so talking about, sorry, just to break in, Christian, Christian, just so people understand right. what you're saying, when you talk about break-even, you're talking about the actual price of a barrel of oil. Yeah, exactly. Okay, because all price in which BP can pay their dividend plus capex. Right, and, and, and right now the dividend, yeah. and right now the dividend is five point three percent. So at these different price points, this is the ability of BP to maintain that five point three percent current dividend yield. Exactly, pay all your dividends, and therefore understanding what all price it is is important because if they if if at this full price they still can't pay their cash dividend, you've got a problem. When in reality they're really in the money, so to speak. Uh, this quarter, it, all they need is $37 a barrel you know, this is for them to pay all their dividends and their capex. So that cash neutrality is a leading indicator for BP that, you know what, having been on the back foot and behind the, behind the peers in terms of Macondo and recalibrating under lower oil, very strong refining, a fantastic result in the upstream, which is no, no coincidence. There's all these projects coming online on much better margins with also managing capex. Yeah. You put that all together... All you need is thirty-five dollars to pay the dividend, which is right. a testament to BP's ability to recalibrate. And, and folks, you know, to be fair to the long-term mediocrity off the mat of early two thousand sixteen, they're up sixty-nine percent, PIM twenty-six percent per year. Right. Well, I've got to it's ask you, Christian, how much of that is BP? How much of that is oil? And and you got to yeah, give us about a minute. Christian. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I'd say two-thirds of that's oil, a third of that's BP, so I don't want to be too cute around the, around the mix. And I think BP has underperformed, and uh, that's mainly due to Macondo having been raised in terms of cost and also still being in the penalty box in terms of perception around being able to deliver a proper cash flow uplift on all the new projects. So this quarter was crucial in terms of getting out of the penalty yeah. box to prove that it's not just the oil price, underlying cash flow um, for BP so is best in class for the disappears this quarter. Well, Christian, we're going to go here, but just to be clear here, you're saying this is a new BP? Absolutely. This, we're entering into a new inflection for BP, which is Maconda behind them, new projects coming online, strong refining, the stars aligning okay. for them, but not just in a sort of two-month, three-month. This is now a long-term trending where, having been out the money in terms of paying their dividend, they're now massively in okay. the money and moving into best-in-class. Now, this has been one of the Christian... Uh, thank you uh, so much. Greatly appreciated uh, this morning with J.P. Morgan Casanova, Christian Malik. 
uh, in London. And we say good morning to Mr. Dudley and the people at British Petroleum. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.